0: Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. Today I have a treat for you. I have a lecture by Professor N.T. Wright where he shows how Paul's epistles fit with the Hebrew prophets and the Gospels. Rather than seeing Paul as the purveyor of a heavenly hope wherein saints may enjoy disembodied bliss, Wright highlights a number of key passages that unlock Paul's kingdom-centered hope. Here now is episode 136, Whatever Did St. Paul Do With the Kingdom of God? with N.T. Wright.
1: What did Paul do with the kingdom of God? Well, of course, he preached it, he lived it, he longed for it. But that begs the question as to what the kingdom actually is. And this is a serious problem. So many Christians in the Western world blithely assume that they know what kingdom of God is all about and then just assume that that's what Paul and the others are referring to. And so we have to do a bit more digging back to see what kingdom of God meant, not only in the Gospels, which is its prime location, of course, in the Synoptic Gospels, in terms of the actual word, a phrase, but also in terms of the Jewish context. There is a preliminary problem, by the way, since there are some American friends here. I've frequently had Americans say to me, um, of course, it's very difficult for us Americans to think about kingdom of God because you British have a king or a queen and we haven't had one of those for a long time. So we really can't relate to that. Now, the, the, the cheap answer to that is that if you compare today's British constitutional monarchy with today's American presidency, Actually, it's the American presidency that's much more like an old-fashioned king than what you have in today's, um, in today's constitutional monarchy. Life is much more complicated than that. But in any case, of course, the understanding of king in the ancient world was radically different from anything that you find in today's world. Things are much more complicated. And in any case, also, the idea of the kingdom of God not only Uh, says that God is king, therefore the human kings are somehow relativized, but transforms the nature of kingship itself right then and there. So we shouldn't expect this to be a metaphor from kingship, which we all know about, therefore God is just like that. That is precisely not how it works, and that's, of course, one of the reasons Jesus told all his parables. Let me tell you what the kingdom of God's like. There was a person who did this, that, or the other. Uh, In other words... Uh, You don't know ahead of time, just because you have some experience of kingdoms, what God's kingdom is going to be like. You're going to have to have those ideas of kingdoms cracked open, blown apart, reassembled in a quite new way around the facts of who God actually is. Just to recap what I said last night, Kingdom of God stroke kingdom of heaven, which are uh, more or less identical in in reference, uh, in denotation that is, though of course subtly different in connotation simply because of heaven being uh, a reverent periphrasis for God in uh, Matthew's gospel. Kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God is not the place called heaven where God rules. It is the fact that God who is in heaven rules It's not the place where it's the fact that. And as soon as we say that, we realize that to talk about the kingdom of God is actually uh, to use an abstract noun kingdom where what we're really talking about is a verb, an action, God ruling, God reigning. And once we realize that, then we realize where this all comes from in Judaism, which is the entire sweep of the Old Testament and its reappropriation in the Second Temple period, and particularly passages like those Psalms, the second half of the 90s, 95 to 99, which speak again and again of Yahweh reigning and ruling and calling the whole earth to order. And, of course, that's a theme which occurs even when you don't get the idea of Yahweh himself reigning or ruling. Um, You get it, say, in Psalm 2, where the nations are in an uproar and the kingdoms are in turmoil, and God laughs at them and says, look, I am setting my king on Zion, my holy hill. And let me tell you, he is my son, and you nations are better watch out because he's going to sort things out and going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what God's kingdom looks like. And it translates, of course, easily into other abstract nouns like God's sovereignty, God's saving rule over the world. And what this is about, therefore, is not something to do with heaven over against earth. As I said last night heaven is the control room for earth the one who is in heaven is the one who is ruling on earth and that that's at the heart of the ascension I may say again a little bit more about that later but the point of claiming God's sovereignty over the world is, of course, that the world doesn't look as though God is running it right now. It didn't in the Second Temple period, didn't in the First Temple period, whenever they were writing those psalms in the 90s. It didn't look as though God was ruling the world. It is a truth which you celebrate in worship and which you then have to go and work for in the world. Because, because, the God of whom we speak is the God of Genesis 1, who, when he made the whole creation, made it to work in a particular way, namely, under the image-bearing sub-authority of human beings. That's what image-bearing is all about. The angled mirror reflecting God's stewardship into the world. That reflecting is what the image actually is about in Genesis 1, or so I believe. I know there's a lot of controversy about that, inevitably. And so the way that God intends to work is through human beings. So when the world rebels and uh, goes bad, and the thorns and the thistles of Genesis 3 come and choke God's project, what is God going to do? Answer, in Genesis 12, he is going to call a human being and say, in and through you, The families of the earth will be blessed. And by the way, I'm going to give you a land, a piece of territory as your inheritance, the place which will be the sign of my purposes for the whole world. I'm, you could say, reading that into it, I think that actually is there in Genesis 12 and other passages in Genesis, and it's certainly there by the time we get to the Psalms and particularly to Isaiah, the idea that this land is the place where God wants his, which God wants to be, as it were, his pilot project. So that through Israel and through Israel's obedience, this land will be brought into fruitfulness, flowing with milk and honey, but so that it will not be there just for itself, but so that it will be there for the nations as well. So the project gets focused on Israel. When God wants to rescue his world, he doesn't want to do it in a way that is other than how it was created. That is to say, it's going to have to be done through human beings, through Israel, his chosen people. That's why there is a chosen people. Not, as in some varieties of Calvinism, Mr. Chairman, um, as though God simply wants to have these people off to himself for their own sake, as though the purpose of salvation is to have some people who go home to God and are with him forever. I've read many accounts of salvation which simply leave the story there. Salvation is not God's gift only to his people, but through his people to the world. That's the Genesis vision. That's the Deuteronomy vision. That's the Psalms vision. That's the Isaiah vision. It is too light a thing, says God to the servant, that you should be my servant simply for the sake of the tribes of Israel. I will make you a light to the nations so that my glory may extend to the ends of the earth. That's always the emphasis chosen for the sake of that larger project. So when in Isaiah 40 to 55 we get a concentration of sovereignty of Yahweh over Israel and the nations language, Focus then on the operation of the servant of Yahweh, which comes to its climax in 52 and 53, we need to see that in that larger context, 52 verses 6 to 12, uh, say, uh, shout aloud to, to, to Zion, your God reigns. That is kingdom of God language, even though the phrase kingdom of God isn't there. Your God reigns. And what does it look like in Isaiah when your God reigns? What it looks like is Babylon being overthrown, Israel being rescued, and going back to her land, and Yahweh himself returning to Zion. And I have explored in my book, Jesus and the Victory of God, the way in which precisely those themes, the overthrow of evil, the rescue of God's people, and the return of Yahweh to Zion, become thematic in Jesus' own self-understanding and understanding of his proclamation. But before we get there, Daniel is the other great locus, of course. Daniel chapter 2, where you get uh, the vision which ends up uh, the vision of the statue which is made of, of different metals with the head of gold and the feet of clay and the stone which is cut out of a mountain and smashes the statue on its feet and then the stone itself becomes a mountain and fills the whole earth. And the interpretation both in the text originally and in the way that Josephus reads it, interestingly, within the first century is about God setting up his kingdom over against the wicked and blaspheming and idolatrous kingdoms of the world. And then you get the same sequence in uh, Daniel chapter 7, where instead of different parts of the statue, it's different monsters who come up out of the sea, and instead of the stone that is cut out of a mountain, it is the one like a son of man who is vindicated and exalted, coming on the clouds in the sense of an ascension, not a descent, but an ascent, so that he is seated at the right hand of the Ancient of Days, and so that to him are given kingdom and power and authority, so that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And the interpretation in Daniel 7 is about the people of the saints of the Most High receiving the kingdom God, through his Messiah and through the people of his Messiah, are to be ruling the world and rescuing the world from the predations of evil. All of that is the Jewish backdrop. There's been a huge amount written about that, including my own two cents worth, and uh, if you want to ask more questions about that, we could do that, but we must hurry on. The kingdom of God in the preaching of Jesus has, of course, again, been an enormous topic Uh, Much ink been spilt again, quite a lot from me and others. And the point about Jesus announcing the kingdom of God, just to say it one more time, is that he isn't saying, here's how you can escape from earth and go to heaven. He is saying, here is how the life of heaven comes to birth on earth. Generations of Christians have prayed the Lord's Prayer faithfully, Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven, without stopping to think what it means. I have sometimes lectured about this in rooms full of theologians, and people have come up to me afterwards and have said in all innocence, that's fascinating, I've never really thought of the Lord's Prayer like that. What do the words mean? Thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. What else could that mean? Is it just personalized so that this is a little something which happens in the bit of earth called me until the time when I leave earth? Of course not. This is about God's project for creation, not God's project against creation. And so what Jesus does is to enact the kingdom. He doesn't just talk about it, he does it. And it looks like the healings and the feastings and all of that stuff, going around, having a party to show what it looks like when God is becoming king. And just like your friend establishing his university, as soon as people start doing this stuff, if it really is on earth as in heaven, it touches people where it hurts. It touches socioeconomic interests. It touches class and ethnic structures and systems. And so they get cross. And quite a lot of Jesus' parables were told as answers to the question, what do you think you're up to? Because sometimes when what you're doing is bringing the kingdom on earth as in heaven, the only way you can explain what you're up to is to say, once upon a time there was a woman who had two daughters or whatever it might be. Tell stories which explode that worldview. But the difficulty which generations have had reading the Gospels, and I would love to think that we might be able in our generation to take a big stride And and address this, is that the Gospels have tended in Western readings for a long time, certainly since the Reformation, to fall apart between the first half, if you like, about the healings and the feastings and the parables and all of that stuff, and the ending, which is about the dying and rising of Jesus so that for many Christians, all that really matters is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again so that we go to heaven at last. And all that stuff earlier on was kind of nice, but it was just a good way of showing how kind and supernatural and powerful Jesus actually is and giving a lot of neat doctrinal and ethical teaching as well. But nothing really about the kingdom coming on earth as in heaven. Or people have read it the other way around and said we are kingdom people, we are social justice people, so we are going to do the kingdom on the street and will leave all that funny stuff about uh, atonement and resurrection to people who who enjoy that private spirituality which seems, seems to feed off it. And so the Gospels, which are among the most stunning pieces of writing in the history of the universe, the Gospels are torn apart by our casual traditions. Not helped, of course, by lectionaries, which only give you ten or a dozen verses at a time. So that people don't actually see the thing whole. And scholarship has gone along for the ride. Schweitzer's idea of the early ministry being the sort of Galilean springtime when it was all going fine. And then when people started to get a bit fed up with it, uh, Jesus kicks in plan B, which is to go and die instead. And many, many writers, though they haven't necessarily followed Schweitzer, have done similar things, and many preachers have done similar things by implication, even though they've never articulated it to themselves like that. So that at the end of the day, we're left with this big disjunct, and I suggest that it's a great challenge for our day, before we even get to Paul, to reintegrate the Gospels. Because if it is true that what Jesus was saying was, that what Isaiah and Daniel and the Psalms and all the rest of it were saying was now coming true, then of course there was a victory to be won over evil. Not just over this demon who needed casting out, not just over this piece of prejudice against a prostitute or a tax collector or whatever, but over against evil with a capital E and all the way through that early kingdom ministry, there is a sense of a battle yet to be fought. And if the point all along was that God's kingdom would come on earth as in heaven, then obviously what we've got during the course of Jesus' public career is anticipations of new creation, but new creation itself has not fully burst out until Easter. In other words, if you understand what the kingdom of God really means in the Old Testament and in Second Temple Judaism and that expectation, you will find a way of articulating a holistic reading of the Gospels, of the kingdom of God as something which had to be ultimately achieved by Jesus' victory over the powers that currently enslave the cosmos, ultimately the power of death itself, and the launching of God's project of new creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the necessary means by which that which was begun and inaugurated in his public career could be firmly launched in this world. And if you conversely try and have an atonement theology of death and resurrection without it being the result of and the explosion of that kingdom work, you will turn atonement itself into something else. And there's quite a lot of that going on right now too. I could say something about John, but I won't. Just simply this, that you get very little kingdom of God language in John, officially, as it were, but, boy, do you get kingdom of God theology. I was talking last night briefly about chapter 16. Um, This is the way in which the ruler of this world is overthrown. Chapter 12, as well, now is the ruler of this world cast out, and if I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And you won't understand that amazing confrontation in John 18 and 19 between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, unless you see it in terms of that rich Jewish kingdom of God theology. Uh, I'm tempted to go into that, but I won't, because it's Paul. So, what does Paul do with all this? Well, you could just go to Acts and look at the summaries in Acts. Acts chapter 19, verse 8, in the synagogues in Corinth, he's preaching the kingdom of God. Uh, Acts chapter 20 verse 25, 2025, in his summary to the Ephesian elders, he says, uh, I know that none of you who, uh, about who, uh, in whose midst I've been preaching the kingdom of God will see my face again. It's a summary of what he was on about all the time. And then when he gets to Rome, Acts twenty eight twenty three, twenty eight twenty three, he talks to the Jewish elders about the kingdom of God. And then Luke's great summary at the end, twenty-eight thirty-one, he says that Paul was there in Rome for two years at his own expense preaching the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ openly and unhindered. Now, you could say all that, but of course, many people would quite rightly say that's not primary Pauline evidence, that's what Luke is summarizing as Paul's mission. But was Paul about that, or wasn't he? Well, um, and again, there's lots to say about Acts, I could say if that, that if you wanted. Um, let's just go straight to the heart of the matter, which is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. One of the sort of mm, top dozen or so Pauline passages. I I, I used to give hostages to fortune by saying this is one of the top three most important Pauline passages. But the more you get to know Paul, the more you understand that passage passage after passage after passage can stake quite a strong claim depending on which angle you're coming from. Notice first that kingdom of God is assumed in 1 Corinthians very much like it is in uh, in Acts. That is to say, earlier on in the letter, there are two or three times when Paul refers to God's kingdom in a casual way which make it obvious that he has been teaching about it. In chapter 4, he says the kingdom of God doesn't consist in talk, but in power. Very important stuff. In chapter 6, he says, um, verses 9 and 10, he says that people who do X, Y, Z, A, B, and C will not inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom is a future uh, state of affairs, and of course, generations of Christians have easily assumed that that meant will not go to heaven doesn't seem to me to be what Paul is talking about here. In 1 Thessalonians 2.12, similarly, just to get the footnote references in while we're about it, he talks about God calling us to his kingdom and glory. And again, that has been misread. In Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.5, Galatians 5.21 and Ephesians 5.5, there are passages which speak just like 1 Corinthians 6 of people who behave in certain ways being those who will not inherit God's kingdom. But what is this kingdom and what is he talking about? In 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty to 28, we get the entire sweep of thought from the resurrection of Jesus in verse 20 to God finally being all in all in verse 28. This is one of those passages where you get the whole narrative seen from one point of view. And the first thing to say about it is, of course, that throughout this chapter, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are foundational. This is creation and new creation theology. If you go through with Genesis 1, 2, and 3 in your mind and just make a little note of all the places where there are echoes of and allusions to those chapters in 1 Corinthians 15, you'll be surprised just how much there is. It's a global sweep. It's about what God is doing for the whole world To get the project of creation sorted out once and for all. And the way you do that, according to Genesis 1, is precisely by getting the human being sorted out. Because it is through the humans, as I've said, that God is working in and through and for the whole world. So, Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits, as you know, the offering of the first sheaf of the harvest, indicating that there's a lot more to come. But Paul isn't just talking about individual human beings eventually sharing Jesus' resurrection. Precisely because the point of human beings being rescued is so that they can be image-bearing reflectors of God's love into the world. We shouldn't be surprised that as this paragraph goes on, he talks about what's happening in and for the world itself. Um, Verses 21 and 22, the summary about Adam and Christ. There you are. This is the Genesis picture. This is the big sweep. This is for all people. This is not a private revelation just for Jews or whatever. As in Adam all dies, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in their own order. And the theme of ordering is very important here. Bringing things back into proper order. Those of us who have the long 20th century memories of the the over-orderedness of fascist and similar systems often react against the very idea of order uh, as though really God wanted everything to be in a cheerful chaos. You don't get that idea from Genesis one or Colossians one or whatever. You get the idea of a healing, wise order where each part of creation and each human being knows cheerfully where they belong, what they are made to do. And this is not in the service of some um, some sort of um, horrible hierarchy or whatever. It's just that God wants His creation to work as a coherent whole, not as a ke- not to lie around and, uh, and and function as a chaos. But then the point is. Christ the firstfruits, verse 23, then at his parousia, those who belong to Christ. The parousia when Christ returns, and please, again, this is part of my overall project of trying to get New Testament eschatology into the bloodstream of the church. The parousia is not the time when Jesus comes to snatch people away from this world and take them off somewhere else. The parousia is the time when Christ appears royally to rule this world fully and finally at last. You know, the old hymns say he's coming back to take us home. That's not what the New Testament says. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. That, by the way, I'm told by a friend who knows these things, is a mistranslation of the original Swedish of that hymn, so you might like to check out what the original said, Um, because the idea of the Second Coming is not to take people away. He comes back to rule and heal and transform both us and the whole world. I'm reminded of that lovely line by Professor Robin Scroggs in Union Seminary in New York, who was asked, by a student in class, Professor Scroggs, what is the Parousia? And Scroggs, thinking of First Thessalonians 4, said, one day you'll look out of the window and you'll see all these people going up in the air and you'll say to yourself, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> and the answer is, nope. that's not what it's about. Resurrection. You see, many Christians have never thought through what resurrection actually means. You see this going on in the late medieval period in iconography. I was in, I forget which, Central Italian Cathedral a year or two ago, and they've got these wonderful frescoes, Orvieto I think it was, wonderful frescoes of, of the end, of the eschaton, and they're still painting resurrection. They're doing a kind of Ezekiel 37 thing of, of bodies coming up out of the earth and being clothed with sinews and flesh and becoming living beings on a living earth. But gradually, by by the end of the medieval period, Uh, with the influence of Dante and then the influence of obviously the Sistine Chapel they've talked much more about heaven and hell and not very much at all about new creation and there's a real glitch there in western eschatology which the Reformation just cheerfully bought into and and, you know in Bunyan and so on the, the new Jerusalem is the place that you go off to whereas in Revelation the new Jerusalem is the thing that comes down from heaven to earth We really do have to think this one... Anyway, that's the parousia. At his parousia, nobody else has been raised from the dead. There's no other embodied human being in heaven. Let the reader understand. Uh, Christ is the first fruits, and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. But then, verses 24 to 28, the heart of this paragraph. Notice again the Old Testament roots, not just Genesis, but Psalm 110 and Psalm 8. Psalm 110, which Paul quotes in verse 25... He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. absolutely basic Psalm 110. It comes again and again in the Gospels, alluded to, echoed, quoted uh, by Jesus himself and by other writers in the New Testament. And this is, of course, about kingdom, about kingship. It's one of the great royal psalms, the psalm about God exalting the Messiah to his right hand, and saying, sit at my right hand until we've completed the job of subjugating all your enemies. That is the rule of Christ. And then the, the parallel text in verse um, 27 is Psalm 8, which is very like Psalm 110, except that it isn't about the Messiah, it's about the human being. What are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you take care of them? You've made them little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor and put all things in subjection under their feet. This is a celebration of Genesis 1.26. Paul is saying, in the Messiah, God's destiny for the human being has now at last been realized that the human being will be in authority over all the creation. And it is out of that that Paul constructs his theology of the present reign of Christ. When is Christ reigning? Right now. His resurrection constitutes him publicly as the Messiah, as the Lord of the world, and his ascension is so that he will be in the place from which the present earth is run. He must reign, he says, until he has put all things under his feet. Verse 25, it isn't complete yet, but he is presently reigning. Like Acts chapter 3 verse 20, he must remain in heaven until the time when God renews all things. Acts three twenty and 21. And so, verses 24, back to First Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, uh, he will overthrow all rule and authority and power and dominion. The Greek word there is katargese, w- which sometimes is translated, he will abolish. But if you put this in parallel with Colossians 1, it doesn't look as though it's abolishing all rules and authorities and powers and dominions, but simply nullifying the evil which they are doing because in Colossians they are reconciled, but we'll come back to that later. But anyway, the point is that all rule and authority and power and dominion must submit to Jesus Christ as Lord. This is not a private salvation, anything but. And Paul's addressing this letter to the people of Corinth. They're a Roman colony. They live in a world where Caesar's writ runs, where all that... Uh, r- runs in terms of the ancient spiritual authorities and hierarchies and so on, other things that matter. No, Jesus is Lord and none of those are. And so then, particularly, we note, the last enemy that will be destroyed, verse 26, is death itself. And again, the kingdom of God in Paul must remind us of what we ought to have known from the Gospels anyway, but we easily have avoided. Namely, that resurrection is not what happens to people when they die. In other words, you leave your body behind and you go off in your spirit or soul to a place called heaven. If that is so, death is not defeated. That's not the overthrow of death, that's just the description of death. The overthrow of death is God's creation of a new embodied world and His raising of His people to new embodied life within it. Until that happens, death is not defeated. It is merely colluded with. And there's been an awful lot of collusion with death in much would-be Orthodox Christian theology that hasn't actually begun to reflect on the meaning of resurrection, let alone Kingdom of God. Check it out across at the end of the chapter in verses 50 and 54 following. In verse 50, he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And gnostics in the second century and gnostics in the 20th and 21st century often have picked up that verse and have said, there you are, you see, the final state is not an embodied one at all. We have flesh and blood at the moment, but we won't there. Sorry, flesh and blood here is a shorthand in Pauline language for corruptible, decaying human nature. Irenaeus already made this point um, at the end of the second century, and it remains true. And you can see that because in verses uh, 52 and 53, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this mortal must Put on immortality. Immortality in the New Testament isn't about leaving a body behind and having an immortal soul. Immortality is a new gift for the body. It's very difficult for us to imagine an immortal body. You know, our bodies are corruptible, decaying. Bits drop off. We lose not only hair and fingernails, but all sorts of other things as well. We lose all sorts of powers. And God intends to give us a body which will be to the present body much as the present body is to what we imagine a ghost might be. Oh, how glorious and resplendent, fragile body shalt thou be, when endued with so much vigor, full of health and strong and free. Some of the Easter hymns get it right, some sadly don't. Because then in verses 54 and 55, death is swallowed up in victory. This is what the kingdom of God looks like in Pauline theology. God, through Christ, winning the victory over all enemies, including particularly death. So that at the moment what we have, back to verses 26-27, at the moment what we have is the kingdom of Jesus Christ, already ruling and using that rule to do the work of calling the world to account. What we will have in the end is when Christ has defeated death itself by raising his people from the dead through the power of the Spirit, and at that point he will hand over the kingdom to the Father, so that God will be all in all. Fascinating little twist there, which you don't really find anywhere else in Paul's theology. The idea of the kingdom of Christ and then the ultimate kingdom of God of course in all sorts of ways and times the two are fused it's not an absolute separation you do see it again in Ephesians chapter 5 where Paul says um, that people will not have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God as though the first may be the present kingdom and and he's saving the phrase kingdom of God there for the ultimate future but elsewhere he seems to slide them together and I wouldn't hold Paul to having an absolute disjunction as though he ran that, 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 that theme all the way through. But the point is this about 1st Corinthians 15. This is not just an odd bit of teaching tacked on the end of the letter, uh, of a letter which is basically about something else. As you'll see if you look at my work on 1st Corinthians 15 in my big book on the resurrection, 15 is where all the themes from earlier in the letter finally come together and he's been hinting towards 15 all the way through the letter. Whatever he's talking about, whether it's marriage and sex, whether it's personality cults, whether it's problems in the church, everything is looking forward to the fact of please will you learn to think eschatologically, please will you learn to think about the fact that God raised the Lord and will raise us by his power. Even when it's the lovely poem on love, He doesn't say simply, here is how you ought to love one another. He says, we are this way at the present, but in the future we'll be different. Now I see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know as I am known. Now there abide faith and hope and love, these three, but the greatest, because... Lots of other things will pass away, but love is going to last. In other words, the point even of his ethics is eschatological. It's kingdom of God. He's saying love is not just your duty, it is your destiny. Get on board now with the way things are going to be when God is all in all. This is what kingdom of God looks like in Paul. So then back to the other obvious passage, which is Romans 5. Obviously in parallel to that bit of 1 Corinthians 15. Romans 5:12 to 21. And please note in 521 and everywhere else where the phrase occurs, this blessed word eternal life, zoeionios. And of course within the soggy Platonism of so much Western culture, Christian and non-Christian, people have assumed that eternal life means a non-spatio-temporal, non-material ultimate future. There you are. Paul teaches about eternal life. That's where we're going to. Sorry, Zoe Ionios translates Olam Hava, or rather, the life of the, 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 uh, the Olam Hava, the life of the age to come. In Jewish thought, you have the present age and the age to come. And the point about eternal life is, it is that it is the life of the coming age, the life which is proper to God's new age. I know this is hard for many people to take on board, and this isn't today's topic particularly, but let me just say, God made space, time, and matter in Genesis 1, and said it was very good. And even though there will be a transition, things in the present world which turn out to have been advanced, signposts to the reality. I said last night that the sun and the moon, they won't be there in the new creation, because God himself will be the light. And it looks as though the great lights in heaven are advanced signposts to something which is about God's own presence. So there will be transition, there will be change from the present world to the new one. But I don't think that the ideas of space and time and matter were bad ideas which God is going to say, phew, let's just get rid of that stuff and make you pure disembodied immortal souls after all. So don't read eternal life in that disembodied way is what I'm saying. But in five twelve to twenty one, we have the two reigns: the reign of sin and death, and the reign of grace and life. The reign of sin, he talks about it in verse fourteen. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those who did, over those who didn't trans, transgress as Adam did, and then at the end, verse twenty one, so that as sin reigned in death, so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Typical Pauline summary, piling up these prepositional phrases on top of one another. It's the two, re- and of course, the reign of grace is a periphrasis for the reign of God, just like the reign of heaven is a periphrasis for the reign of God. This is about God ruling through His saving justice unto life through Jesus. And in the middle of that, when in verses 15, 16, and 17, he is stressing the superabundance of grace over against what happened in Adam. It isn't simply that, well, God's put us back where Adam was. Adam fell, we've got back where we started. No, it's that Jesus had to begin where Adam had, had ended up, and he takes us much further than Adam got to. And at the point where he's saying that, and remember who Adam was, he was the image bearer who had to reflect God's wise stewardship into creation. At the very point where he's saying, God has made us more than what Adam was. In verse 17, he says, uh, if through the trespass of the one death reigned through that one, how much more will those who receive... Uh, the, the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life? Now there's a theme which you don't often hear most Western Christians talking about. Okay, there are some who do, and the Calvinist tradition has been better at it than most. Most Christians never even heard of the idea that we are called to be kings, queens, rulers, priests... It's there in Revelation, of course, quite a lot in Revelation, in chapters 1, 3, 5, and 20 in Revelation. You've made them kings and priests to our God, and they will rule on the earth. But it's also there, interestingly, in various other odd hints that Paul just scatters here and there. 1 Corinthians 6, when he's saying, how dare you go to law with uh, before unbelieving judges? He says, don't you know that we're going to be judging angels? So if you can do that, can't you try ordinary human casing? Where do you get the idea that we're going to be judging angels from, Paul? Where earth does that come from? And Paul would say, haven't you read the Old Testament? Haven't you read the book of Daniel? Do you not know that the people of God are to share the rule of the Messiah and judge the world? He's taking it for granted at that point because he has deeply embedded in his theology that which emerges here in chapter 5, verse 17. Uh, he says it in 2 Timothy 2.12. I know some people think Second Timothy isn't Pauline. Let's just leave the footnote there for the moment. Um, the, uh, if, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. Sum basile sumen. And it goes back, as I say, to Daniel, and also to the book of Wisdom. Wisdom, chapter 3, verse 8, and I know that that's not printed in everybody's Bibles because it's in the Apocrypha, but Wisdom of Solomon is a hugely important book if you want to understand the world of thought that Paul is living in. Um, again, go and chase that up, Wisdom 3, 8, sometime. So the point is this, in chapter 5, he is drawing together what he said in Romans 1 to 4, Chapter 5, verses 12 to 21 is, where have we then got to? Let's look around ourselves and see where the argument has taken us. And from this mountaintop, now we can see the whole next bit of countryside that's to be occupied. So that when you read Romans 1 through to 5.11, you're not talking about justification by faith as something other than The kingdom of God, which is the rule of grace through Christ, which is the rule that those who receive the gift of this grace will themselves share. You're talking about the way in which the one true God has been faithful to his promises to Abraham and because of that faithfulness has acted in Jesus Christ to create a single family of Jews and Gentiles alike characterized by faith and faith alone with their sins forgiven so that they are now ready through the Spirit to be God's agents in the transformation of his world in the final age, and also, I suggest, by anticipation at the present. But we'll talk about what that anticipation looks like in just a moment. So, in other words, justification by faith is God putting us humans to rights in order that, as rightened human beings, we can be again God's image-bearers for the world. Justification by faith is the pilot project of putting the human beings right in order that ultimately the world may be put right. And if you take justification out of that context, you truncate it. And yes, I do believe that much of the Protestant tradition has done exactly that. But then you see, when you get Romans 5 uh, lined up like that, what do you see out the other side? Well, Romans 6 to 8, of course. And in Romans 6-8, you have this amazing Exodus-shaped argument. Think of the story of the Exodus. The people of Israel in slavery in Egypt come through the waters um, to freedom. They get the law on Mount Sinai and they go home to their inheritance. So what happens in Romans 6 you come through the waters of baptism, which means you are no longer slaves but are free. And in Romans seven you come and face the question about the law and discover that the law is a very difficult and complex thing and it looks as though it's threatening you, but in fact that threat has itself been dealt with in Christ and in his death, Romans eight three. The result being that we are now eight twelve following on the way to our inheritance. What is that inheritance? It is not going to heaven. It is the equivalent for the Christian of what the children of Israel were doing when they were going to claim that bit of territory that God had promised to Abraham. I've said it before and we will say it again. The whole world is now God's holy land. Again, look at the way the Reformation tradition has marginalized Romans 8, 18-27. Rudolf Bultmann said it was just a bit of the flotsam and jetsam of Paul's apocalyptic background, just sort of stuck in here um, for good measure. But actually, though many evangelicals have sneered at Bultmann for his cavalier treatment, much of the evangelical tradition has done exactly the same because there wasn't a theological place in the system to put what is manifested the climax of the book so far. Which is, well you know it I hope, 18 following which is that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed. And what is that glory? This is kingdom of God theology. This is what happens to the kingdom when it's stated in chapter 5 and then worked out through to 8.18 following. The glory is not that we will just end up in heaven shining like electric light bulbs. The glory, that's how a lot of people think, um, the glory is that we will be set in authority over God's world. And that's what creation is longing for. Paul says creation is longing for the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. Because until we are sorted out, creation can't be sorted out. What creation needs... See, the project of Genesis 1 has not been abandoned. It should be put on hold until the mess could be sorted out. The project of Genesis 1 needs totally faithful Hence, renewed, forgiven, etc. Human beings under God over the world. And when that happens, when, in other words, we are raised from the dead, then the whole creation will be set free from its bondage to decay to share the liberty of the glory of the children of God. The freedom which results from God's children being glorified. Do you see the point? This is what the kingdom of God looks like. I was going to drop in as an interlude before my final piece, Philippians 2 and 3. The phrase kingdom of God isn't mentioned, but if Philippians 2, 5 to 11 isn't about the kingdom of God, then I, I was about to say I'm a Dutchman. You have to be careful about saying that in the presence of <laughs> Calvinists, I know. Um, the, uh, Paul talks about the lordship of Jesus in that spectacular poem Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it's a poem which is designed, as my former student Peter Oakes has argued in great detail, designed to have the echoes of Caesar formulae. It's, it's Caesar rhetoric, or Alexander rhetoric even, it's, it's widespread in the ancient Near East. And here it is, and it's Jesus. He is the servant. He has given his life Therefore, he now has the name which is above every name. And then you get the same thing pulled through to the end of chapter 3, where Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. You see, again and again, so many Christians have said, there you are, we're citizens of heaven. So that's really where we belong, and that's where we'll be going when we die. That's not how the logic of citizenship works. Philippi was a Roman colony. After the uh, civil wars a century before Paul was writing, the Romans had settled a lot of military veterans in northern Greece because the last thing they wanted was that lot going back to Rome. Military veterans without any land and with a lot of time and energy on their hands are a thorough nuisance. Let's settle them there in Greece and then we'll call them a colony and have the grand idea that they are bringing Roman culture to northern Greece. Well, they did, sort of. They make a wilderness and call it peace, as Tacitus has somebody in Britain say. Um, but the point is this. We are citizens of heaven, and from there we await the Savior, the King, the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is kingdom of God theology in Paul, who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body, just as in 1 Corinthians 15, by the power which enables him to subject all things to himself. Yes, echoes of Psalm 110... Psalm 8, hence 1 Corinthians 15. Philippians 3:21. that's the kingdom of God. Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself, and one day he'll do it. Now, the last bit I was going to say is about Ephesians and Colossians. And again, Colossians 1 and 2, very important. Uh, read all about it. I've written about that elsewhere. But we must notice Ephesians 1, verses 20 to 23, particularly. Uh, And incidentally, I think one of the great gains of the so-called new perspective on Paul is that despite what most new perspective practitioners have done, you ought jolly well to get Ephesians and Colossians back with a bang into the middle of your understanding of Paul instead of falling off the end in the direction of Paulinicity, where much Lutheran scholarship had left them. It's because they've got a high Christology and a high view of God's salvation and church and world particularly, which all the things that the Lutheran theology that has done so much exegesis over the years didn't want Paul to be concerned about. And if you want to see the first example of good new perspective uh, on Paul uh, understanding, then Ephesians 2 is exactly that. Ephesians 2, 1-10 to 10 is the traditional understanding, if you like, and Ephesians 2, 11-21 is the new perspective understanding, and they belong absolutely together. And there they are already in Ephesians. Anyway, that, that, that's slightly trailing my coat. The point is, in verses 21-23, to 23, Uh, 20 to 23, God has raised Christ from the dead and has sat him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion every name which is named in the present age and the age to come and here it is again, Psalm 8, he has put all things under his feet and has given him to be head over all things for his body, the church his body, the fullness of the one who fills everything in everywhere, uh, all in all uh, again, exactly as in 1 Corinthians 15. I hope you can hear those echoes coming through here. This is the climax of that great prayer and celebration through uh, through chapter 1. And the point is this. The resurrection establishes Jesus as the world's true Lord. And this is why the world hates the doctrine of resurrection. The rhetoric of the Enlightenment these last 200 years has said, we now have modern science, so we know that dead people don't rise. I think, "Excuse me, go back to Homer, go back to Aeschylus, go back to Pliny, go back to anyone you like. And they all knew that dead people. It Didn't take Voltaire and Rousseau to tell us that, for goodness sake. <laughs> the point is that the resurrection challenges the idea that humans have the right to run the world the way they want to political agenda under the would-be post-enlightenment theology has been absolutely massive, hardly surprising, because if you took verses 21 to 23 seriously, then Caesar and all those like him ought to be shivering in their shoes, which is why in chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, this is the point of the gospel, that through the church... The manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now there's a challenge. The word for manifold there is polypoikele, the many-colored, many splendid wisdom of God. Through the church being the church, it's many-colored, many-sided, many splendid self, doing all of multiple different things that it's called to do, and yet being one body in Christ. That is the sign to the powers of the world that God is God and that they aren't. And if you want to know what that looks like in practice, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 gives you a pretty clear idea. The unity of the church, not a lowest common denominator unity, but a hard-won, tough unity growing up into Christ. The holiness of the church Non-negotiable, it won't do to go off and fight the political battles while the whole system is rotten behind you because you've forgotten about personal and corporate holiness. And then, yes, chapter 6, the spiritual warfare. There wouldn't be spiritual warfare if the kingdom were not already breaking in. There would just be continuing slavery. But don't imagine that we have such a measure of inaugurated eschatology that you can forget Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. There's much, much more I could say about that. What then does this look like? This is Paul's gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. It isn't that the gospel is about us getting saved in a different way, and then, oh yes, there's a bit about the kingdom of God on the side. The gospel, the good news, the sigh of relief good news is that Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified and risen Messiah, and therefore the Lord of the world. And that he, as Lord of the world, will be God's agent in making all things new at last, and that we are called to share that. That is the gospel. But if the kingdom of God is already inaugurated, yes, there is such a thing as power. The kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. But notice what that power looks like. Take 1 Corinthians 4 verse 20, which says that and baptize it in 2nd Corinthians because Paul's power is hugely, massively contested even within the church. I have had a sense, and I've shared this with my brother bishops and others in the Anglican Communion, that we are living through a 2 Corinthians moment in the Anglican Communion right now. can't speak for other particular denominations. We are living through a crisis of authority. We are living through a battle for the kingdom. We are living through a multiple complex struggle. That's what it looks like. We have this treasure, Paul says, in earthen vessels, precisely so that the surpassing power can belong to God and not to us. We don't possess it with fear and trembling as we worship the God in whose image we're made. We reflect him into the world, and that carries the power, not of a human organization, but of the gospel the task therefore and there's one other passage which I haven't mentioned Romans 14 verse 17 when he says the kingdom of God doesn't consist of food and drink but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and we ought to see by now that that is not saying therefore all we really have is a quietist pietist kind of spirituality which is about being peaceful and being joyful away from the world the word righteousness ought to tell us different this is about God's kingdom coming on earth as in heaven And it is about the kingdom bearers, those who will rule and reign in that eventual kingdom, going the way that Jesus himself was called to go. We can't have the first half of the Gospels without having the second half. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, they must take up their cross and follow me. Your friend in Korea found exactly that. Paul found exactly that on the road. Many of you are living through that right now, I'll bet. I know about one or two, and I'll bet there are more. This is what it looks like. Don't be sidelined. Don't collude with death by settling for a privatized spirituality. Go for the full thing. Follow Jesus all the way to the kingdom. May we pause and pray before we take some questions because we've put some heavy stuff on the table now and it's important that we earth this in prayer. mighty Father as we thank you for the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ over sin and death and over every power that rages itself against you and against your kingdom. So we pray that we in our day and that your church in our day may have such an understanding of your kingdom and of the victory of Jesus that we may have wisdom to know how to be servants of it in our own day and that we may have the courage in believing that Jesus is Lord, to be prepared to face whatever it takes and whatever it costs for us individually and corporately to be agents of that kingdom in the present. Help us, we pray, to be wise, to be faithful, to be true, and in your good time bring in the kingdom when you will be all in all, but in the meantime help us to be faithful servants of the one who is already ruling and reigning on earth as in heaven, even Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.
0: Thanks so much for tuning in, and thank you, Professor Wright, for your permission to rebroadcast this talk. If you would like to delve deeper into Wright's courses, you can get them at ntwrightonline.org, which includes a brand new course based on his brand new book called Paul, a Biography. This is a more readable condensation of his larger book, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, which weighed in at 1,700 pages. So check that out if you are interested in delving deeper. Also, I have links to this on the show notes for today. And if you'd like to engage with the material you just heard about Paul's usage of the kingdom in, in titles like Christ, obviously, but then also calling Jesus Lord and some of his really remarkable statements about the connection between the creation and the sons of God, like in Romans 8, please stop by at restitudio.org and look for episode 136 to leave a comment. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.